Hello and welcome. It's Exit the Stage Door. I'm your host, Aaron Deachman, and the sun is coming up and I'm behind and I'm really sorry about all of that. But you know what? Let's focus on the positive. The positive is you've got Emily Liner, who is the playwright and producer of the real world cobble. There's a whole discussion about how you pronounce that word and what that is. That's the capital of Afghanistan, if that's not clear to you. Anyway, she's a lovely person, and we got to talk about everything nuts to bolts, um, empty page idea to fully realized, well, capital fringe fully realized cap fringe show. It's her first. Congratulations, Emily. Congratulate her. Give this a listen. Please go see her show. It starts on the 7th. It's at the Lab 2 at Atlas. Um, obviously, you, there's tickets, links to the tickets in the show notes. Please go buy those tickets. Don't forget your buttons. And uh, enjoy, guys. Emily Liner, Real World Cobble. And yeah, I'm getting good here. And I'm going to turn this on, record. All right, and I'll say something so yeah. you can check it out. Yeah, there you are, right there. <laughs> All right, I'm going to take these off. Okay, so real world cobble. Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's a great attempt at pronouncing cobble because that has actually been <laughs> one of the uh, funny discoveries during auditions in particular. Cobble or Kabul, right? <laughs> um, and I learned that it was cobble through this anecdote that I read from General David Petraeus. Um, <laughs> Some war correspondent who was based in Afghanistan said that if you said the word Kabul to him in an interview, he would stop the interview and correct you. So that's how I learned. Okay, it's Kabul. Petraeus says so. That's how it is. <laughs> I actually, uh, I, I, I don't know if cheated is totally the right word, but I just covered. Um, so I do. I write reviews and stuff for DC Metro Theater Arts. Yes. And. Um, but I also cover independent film for them. So I was covering AFI Docs. Mm -hmm. And on day two, there was this phenomenal documentary called uh, Sonita, which is about an Afghani immigrant in Iran who wanted nothing more in life than to be a rapper. <gasps> like hip-hop. She spit great game, too. Like, like, she wasn't, like, playing around with it. She was really good at it and then one of the very first things that happens is like she works at the center for Im immigrant children so like they still get education and stuff like that and she's the janitor but she's leading them in like a call and response in one of her one of her raps and it's adorable first of all she has this giant silver plated like toy in her hand that is a microphone and the little girls are all like singing it back to her and it was amazing so the um and an incredible journey too. Like the filmmaker was there, uh, Roxare, who uh, Magami, and she was like, I. S she was introduced to her from a cousin who's like, seriously, you have to, you have to get to know this girl. And she started taking music lessons in uh, Sonita. Took music lessons in her apartment, and so she decided this was a great opportunity for a film, right? And she thought she said she was making a dark movie about a teenager who had no future. Because how is this girl who who emigrated? She's fifteen then. They were. She's been in Iran without her mother or the rest of uh, other. She has like one sister who's still in Tehran, and she has no paper. She's been there since she was like five. She has no proof of her birth or her name or anything like that. 
and she wants to do something that's actually illegal in Iran. Right. Uh, that's she's just like that's just not going to go well. And almost immediately, her mother shows up. It's like, yeah, we have to sell you. We need your bride price to pay your brothers for your brother's bride. Oh wow! And so the filmmakers are said, I'm totally dominating the first thing with this, but this movie really is amazing, and I think it's it's relevant too. We'll get to Kabul in a second. Um, they change course. They're like, uh, uh, she she asked. She, there's this beautiful moment where um, she like just out of sheer curiosity, she turns the camera on the on the filmmaker early on and just there's no it's but it turns out to be a bit of a foreshadowing because she like directly addresses her do you have two thousand dollars because that's i can get six more months if you can give my mom two thousand dollars and she's like no you know we, we got to explore every option and they did but like they there was nobody could do anything for her because as an afghan immigrant with no papers in iran she has no legal no one has any legal standing with her mm-hmm. so the filmmakers give the mom the money and then she does a little bit more for her, as it turns out. Um, she, I don't. They don't explain how she knows this people who run the Wasatch Academy in Utah, huh. but she gets this girl a scholarship to study in the United States. So it's, it's it stops being this thing about a girl with no hope to a girl who might actually like succeed because they make a music video and the music video wins a contest and then like it just snowballs. Like this girl is amazing and the whole world is starting to recognize it, and but she has to go back to Herat. To get her birth certificate. Which does that even exist? Right. Like, so that's the next part of the journey is the filmmakers are like, what, how's the family going to react to her being in Herat? She's not going to tell them the truth about the fact I need, I need my birth certificate, my passport so I can go to the United States. They, they don't tell her she's in the United States until she's in the United States, which makes sense. But then, so then she has to go from Herat to Kabul to get the passport. So they they spend. I spent a lot of time listening to everyone talking about those places. Mm-hmm. You know, so and that's actually a really arduous journey. I mean, they're on completely different sides of oh, the yeah. country. Yeah. I, it, yeah. So actually, it's interesting though that you open this with a discussion about a documentary about music because I do think that that's um, kind of an underlying theme. I mean, certainly when I was writing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it had some musical influences. Um, you know, I had a little playlist that I made that had things like Rock the Casbah <laughs> and, you know, North American Scum by LCD Sound System. Yeah. Um, actually, kind of a, a lot of party songs because I was thinking about what it would be like to be in a group of a bunch of 24 to 25 year olds who decide to move to Kabul, Afghanistan and I think to do that, you have to be a little cavalier and maybe a little adventure seeking and fun loving. Um, so that was what was going through my head during the writing process. And our sound designer for the show, Austin Bird, has actually found a lot of really cool uh, music from Afghanistan. He actually found some hip hop music. Yeah. And I'm almost wondering, I mean, one of them was a, a female hip hop group. So when you're talking about this hip hop artist, I almost thought, hey, wait a second. <laughs> um, so th- there will be some um, it, that really adds um, some really cool elements to mm. the show. Um, there's also, you know, the documentary Afghan Star which is about the TV station that I modeled Mm -hmm. uh, my play on. Uh, The TV station in Afghanistan is called Tolo TV, and it was probably the first uh, serious attempt at building a television station after the Taliban rule ended. 
and they had an American Idol ripoff called Afghan Star that uh, really captured the imagination of the entire country. Uh, and then finally, the other thing I was thinking of when uh, talking about that documentary is, have you seen, um, oh, what is it called? Um, it's about, it's called something about the Persian cats. No one knows about Persian Thank cats. Thank you. Yes, yes. Yes. It's an amazing document. It's not even a documentary. Exactly. Right. Which is one of the cool things about it. Yes. Yes. That's one of my favorites. Um, and it, it has a very similar ending because they're looking to leave Iran mm -hmm. um, in order to pursue their music career. But I was just thinking about that when you're talking about this. If you're listening to this podcast, like, yes, you need to come to my show, but you also really need to go watch this movie. The end. <laughs> yes. It's it's really great. Uh, I forget. I I. Stumbled on it. It was on Netflix for a while. So I was just like, what's this? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's like a tour through modern, like, sub, like, rock slash hip hop subculture in Tehran. Some of which is this gray area because it's not entirely legal what they're doing. Right. And there's a lot of, like, shifting studios around and getting kicked out. And, like, they, they, but they, there's a main group of people, but they bounce around the music scene. And they themselves are fictional, I believe, but many of the groups that they interact with are actual practicing musicians within within Iranian music. Yeah, I think that's like the, right. The rappers too. That that section where they, I think he's blind, isn't he? The the hip the guy who raps in the in the building that's under construction with like the the mountains off in the background because the building's not done yet. Right. I mean, it's so dense. It's so easy to be like, oh, this is my favorite part. And someone's like, I don't even remember that because there's so much going on in this. And it's been a while since I saw it too. But it's, when I was watching the documentaries, like, oh my gosh, this is exactly the Iran is like so many of these places. Like if you're, if you're, if you're wondering like, why is Afghan star like popular? Why is that idea? How does that catch in anybody's imagination? But it, the forms of culture are not like, we might think of them as Western, but the West doesn't own them or anything like that. There's no, there's nothing inherently American about it. And they've, they've captured and cottoned on to the things that resonate with them. Mm -hmm. um, many of which are as universal as we artists like to believe. Right. <laughs> like struggle, resistance, love, all of this stuff is, that's what it's about. Absolutely. <laughs> and the, it, speaking of, uh, it's not, it's not in the Persian speaking world with two things since we're on, <laughs> since we're on cool movies. Um, one is called Crossing the Bridge. Oh, I don't know it. And this is a documentary about Turkish rock and roll from Fatih Akin, um, who is a German Turkish filmmaker who a lot of his stuff is is about like Germans looking to Turkish roots. Uh, a lot of his characters are both or, or, or in that liminal world. Mm -hmm. And uh, like uh, Edge of Heaven is probably the most famous one and head on. Uh, and uh, Soul Kitchen Imuli, which doesn't actually hasn't been translated into English, <laughs> um, stuff like that. It's I mean, it's like the rock scene in Istanbul is it's incredible and vibrant and amazing. And he's just like, yes, you have to know this stuff. That one's actually in English, despite the fact that he's a Turkish German. And the other thing, the other Iranian movie that I stumbled on recently on Netflix that's awesome is A Girl Walks Home Alone at Midnight. Which oh. is a vampire western set in Iran. <laughs> I've d I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It's so good. But you kind of sold it right there in like a five sentence synopsis. That's all so, I. That's all five I saw. Word and I was like, done. 
This is how we're spending the next hour and a half. <laughs> so, uh, playwriting. Yes. We'll we'll talk about the whole fringe. I'm fascinated about like fringe and self-reducing, and we'll get into into get into all of that. But the idea for the play starts with you having an idea that you can write a play. Yes. So where did that idea come from? Honestly, it came from seeing other friend shows. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's self-perpetuating. Um, but this was my first time writing a play. Okay. I've written things in the past. I've always enjoyed creative writing. Um, I wrote for my school newspaper for a long time when I was in college. And currently, I have a job that's... I, could qualify as professional writing at a think tank. Um, I spend most of my days writing, um, but about a very specific corner of, you know, economic policy. Um, And I decided to write this play specifically for Fringe. Mm -hmm. That was always in my mind Mm -hmm. from the moment that I first sat down with this idea almost six years ago. Wow. (laughs) Um, And I think... Fringe makes it an achievable goal to write and produce a play because of the constraints. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. It, it, in that way, it actually helps you complete the project because I knew sitting down, uh, this can't be a Shakespearean five-act play. <laughs> There's no intermission. Um, I knew if I add settings and characters and props that's going to make the play more difficult to stage. So I limited myself to as few settings and people and things as possible while I was writing it. And that helped it all come together, Mm -hmm. having that box to work within. So it's funny because I think people think that Fringe is this free-for-all, and it is in a lot of ways. It's a free-for-all of creative ideas. But the guidelines and guideposts that Fringe, set, uh, Fringe sets up makes it possible for all of these crazy ideas to come out. I have – this is so funny that you should say that because that's going to happen a lot, by the way. I waited to, to, to bring up a couple of the ways that our lives have actually already intersected. Um, <laughs> but on that note, one of my favorite movies of all time is this um, little movie uh, by Lars von Trier about this uh, Danish filmmaker who buried himself away in Cuba, but who who von Trier had admired for years and years, and he was trying to rehabilitate his career. His name is Jürgen Reth, and he re- created a, uh, a little short film called The Perfect Human. And Lars von Trier challenges him to remake the movie. And he gives, each time he gives them what he calls an obstruction. And the movie is called The Five Obstructions. Huh. The point for him being that, exactly what you said, that constraints are not limitations on creativity, but reasons for creative activity. He said, you have to do an animated film. I hate animated films. I know. That's why you have to do it. (laughs) And they come up with this, like, waking lifestyle, talked over thing that was animated by the people who animated Waking Life, and that was amazing. Oh, cool. And uh, so, yeah, I totally, completely agree with that. The idea that you you actually have some rules, just it, it just focuses your brain because you just have to make fewer choices. Like, yes. okay, I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about that toolbox over there because 
I don't have I don't have that. That's that's not what's in front of me. This kit does not demand that toolbox. So great, this is easier. Now I know how many characters I have, how long it needs to be. Mm-hmm. I have a, a general idea of what I can accomplish lighting and sound wise, and stuff like that. So. Yeah, it's actually it's funny. Um, it, this brings up there's this psychological. Um, there are a few studies that have um, suggested that there's this idea of you know limiting choice is in a, a way freeing mm-hmm. and this is something I've, I've read that President Obama practices he limits himself to a very specific um, like small number of suits and ties um, and he goes with it's I, I can't quite remember what it was but there's basically two colors and he picks out the color the night before and that's it and he doesn't think about it anymore and he reasons that it's because the fewer decisions he has to make in a day, the more he can focus on the decisions that really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for me, actually, one of the um, constraints that really helped was the time limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because then I knew, okay, if I'm writing in the screenplay or playwriting format, one page is one minute. I can't go over 90 minutes. Um and I was like, okay, maybe I can write 90 pages of something. But also since I decided to write a comedy, I realized that those 90 pages really matter. And I can't have extraneous mm-hmm. details that don't advance the story or make people laugh. So as I was writing and when I went back to edit and when we started doing table reads, that became my barometer for anything that stayed in the play. Yeah, that's it, the, the whole process is interesting. I mean, I've... Uh, I've- I've done screenplays and stuff like that before. Um, I've been writing for forever. Um, but that it's amazing how much contact with other people at, really accelerates the process of it's a little bit like s- sculpture. Like I, I view my job as bringing a pretty rough hewn thing that will eventually like I've cut away all of the things that's that don't look like the shape. But when we, get around to having all the people in the room that's when we get rid of all the rest and finish with the sculpture ideally sometimes you just sometimes you can't that's that's just life but yeah it's that's a it's a great editing tool is actually hearing it spoken aloud it's like oh that's how that's gonna go okay yeah absolutely and it's everything from the wordplay in a single line to the greater arc of the plot to you know punching up specific moments that happen it's really incredible what can be unlocked when you hear something read out loud so um after i wrote the initial draft i um, joined a playwriting group Mm. um although we actually ended up morphing into more of an any kind of writing group um but that was really helpful to kind of test out a couple of scenes with people and then i did um, uh, my first table read was actually at work, <laughs> which was really intimidating. I, I was believe it. really scared because I thought, oh, my coworkers are going to think that I have the strangest hobby. But I, it worked out great because, you know, I had um, an audience. You know, I had people who were ready to volunteer to read the parts for me. Um, I had a conference room with yeah, a conference right. table to sit around. Uh, we even have a budget for like pizza and beer (laughs) (laughs) and it ended up giving me a lot of confidence that I would not have had if I didn't have that test audience. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I felt like I was taking a really big risk and, uh, it was worth it. So that's when I had the, that's when I decided I could 
go ahead and apply for the Fringe Festival and mm-hmm. pass the co-worker test. Yeah, right. It's like a little bit like this past test. Yeah. And then, you know, even in, you know, auditions were a really eye-opening experience mm-hmm. to hear the words said by many different people mm-hmm. in different ways. Um, and that really helped me kind of nail down some of the cadence that I wanted in the show, um, helped me hear, like, which jokes were landing and which jokes weren't. Um, seeing faces mm-hmm. added to the play gave it a completely different feel. Um, but the other funny thing about auditions is that you hear the same scene 40 times. <laughs> and I was starting to get worried that I was already tired of my own voice oh, yeah. at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the process. <laughs> yep. Don't, 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 don't get involved in this process if you don't have any faith that, <laughs> that you're still going to love the project by the end of it. Because yeah, it will be... It will be so repeated so often. Like I, I used to, so I used to, I, I do it occasionally and still, but I don't like to run shows anymore, but I, I used to run shows as a lightboard operator for like seven or eight years. So I would tech the show and by the end of the run, an average run, right? I would have seen the show probably 40 or 50 times. Yeah. And that's just me coming in at the very end of the process, there's six weeks of rehearsal before that, and there's two months of meetings before that, and there's auditions and all of that other stuff, <laughs> in addition yep. to like the workshops and, and that backstops in the modern American playwriting process. So yeah, get used to it. Yeah, but you know what um, made the process, um, you know, I still, even in the rehearsals we're having now, or a week out from the French Festival, I'm still discovering new things about the show yeah. that the actors have brought to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't laugh at my own jokes anymore because <laughs> at this point I'm just so tired of them. But my actors have found ways to like bring facial expressions and gestures and um, you know just the way they interact with each other. And there's a little ad-libbing that I just am shocked that there are new things to find <laughs> yeah. about the play. And that's why you need other people involved in yeah, it, yeah. you know, because you you need the additional perspectives to, you know, draw things out. So auditioning, I, I mean, like I said, I've, I've written for before, but I've, I've run up against the, so people say all the time, like, you don't have to wait for people's permission to do things. But I was like, well, I still need a group of people to work with. <laughs> I've done the by myself enough part. So taking that next step, what was the first next step? Once you've decided to produce, you apply for Fringe, which you don't, unless your logistics are completely horrible, you don't really get turned down. That's not the point of the, it's not a curated festival. Right. Um, you're just applying for production support. And right. like they're matching you with a with a venue that mm-hmm. matches the logistics of the show that you're creating, as far yeah. as I understand it. That's right. Okay. And it's first come, first serve too. Oh, so, okay. Okay. Yeah. So you're going you're going in for slots that fill up. Gotcha. Right. So I actually I tried to get mine in kind of early in the mm-hmm. process. The application is open for at least two, maybe three full months. Mm, okay. I think it opens in late October. Um, and it closed maybe early January Mm -hmm. and I was told submit by Thanksgiving and you'll definitely be good. And even if you have to submit after that, you're probably fine too, but you know, earlier the better. Mm -hmm. So that's what I shot for. Gotcha. Um, but actually, so if you're talking about 
when did I make the decision to move forward? I would actually even rewind back mm, a little okay. bit um, because I had this idea for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so the initial idea came from an article that I read in the New Yorker about this Afghan TV station called Tolo TV, um, and the guy who founded it. This article is from 2010, I think. Mm, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I read it in the magazine and, you know, I thought it was just a really interesting situation to be in. Um, and there was this one anecdote in particular that was buried in this like 12 page profile of this guy about how he had to go abroad to find people who had work experience in television production to move to Kabul to help him get new shows off the ground. Because, you know, during Taliban rule, you didn't have television, so you didn't have people who worked in television. Right. Uh, so he really had to like build the industry from scratch. And um, the. I just thought it was fascinating that there were people out there who had no other interest in necessarily working in the international sphere, you know, who were probably like, you know, they were specifically hired to write a soap opera. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and then when you think about that added layer, so you're like a 24 year old who's, you know, writing for days of our lives or something. And someone says, Hey, do you want to move to Afghanistan? To right. <laughs> Who's that person? Like, who is that individual? I know a lot of people who are writers assistants who are like, what? I can get the lead credit on the show. Yes, exactly. So I thought, you know, you probably need to be like a little bit ambitious. You have to probably be thinking, you know, I could be doing so much more than, you know, writing about this plot of this, you know, woman who's trying to, kill her stepfather to get the insurance money or whatever it is. Um, and so as I, yeah, I had this in the back of my mind for a long time. Um, but, and, and I actually sat down and wrote a couple of, I think I wrote the first scene, maybe the second scene at that point in time. Mm -hmm. And then I just never went back to it because, you know, other things came up in life and I was doing other stuff. I applied and went to grad school and, Five years later, um, <laughs> last summer, I was chatting with a colleague at work, This, um, a guy who had literally just started working at our job and we're just making small talk. And he said, he said that uh, he thinks that everyone in Washington, D.C. secretly wants to be a screenwriter. <laughs> you know, everyone must have a script, or, you know, in their back pocket mm -hmm. because, you know, we were talking about house of cards and how mm -hmm. the executive producer had been you know like a political hack at some point and you know that sort of thing um and i said yeah you know it's funny i've had this idea in the back of my mind for a long time and i've never written it down and he said why don't you do it yeah and the thought never <laughs> occurred to me i mean obviously it occurred to me but um i it was just something about the earnestness of mm. the way that he posed that question that I thought, yeah, why don't I do it? And I sat down and did it. And it actually didn't take as long as I thought it would. Um, I did it in one summer. Mm -hmm. I probably started just after Memorial Day of 2015. And I finished right at Labor Day, I remember. <laughs> so it can be done. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, I was really surprised. I probably spent maybe 30 minutes to an hour, maybe like two hours a day if I was really like 
feeling a certain passage. Um, I mean, I think it also helped that I had just come off of writing um, like a master's project for oh, yeah, grad right. school. Sure. So I was in that mode. Yeah, yeah. And I wanted a palate cleanser because I had been writing, you know, something for, I graduated from a business school program, actually wrote a master's project about labor unions, which I found great satisfaction in doing (laughs) for a business school program. Um, But I I just needed to do something that was the polar opposite of, you know, an academic Mm -hmm. work. So I thought, let's do the play. Like I'm, I'm in the writing mode. Let's go for it. I don't know why I'm speaking in the plural because I was doing uh, I do that all the time. Yeah, uh, you know, sat there writing by myself. Yeah. But I don't know. I guess maybe the three characters are now, uh, you know, part of my consciousness mm-hmm. or something. I say I, I say that to myself all the time. We're gonna do this today. Let's let's go ahead and do this. I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. It's just like the day to day, day to day writing practice. I think is the most important thing about writing because I don't know. I always had this. I have a very completist personality. Like I like I don't want to start something unless I can actually finish it. I hate not finishing books, even if I hate them. I will force myself to finish them. Yeah. Just recently got rid of that habit because I don't have as much time anymore, so I can't indulge. Um, but I, writing has been helped the most by. I mean, I have I had to write a master's thesis at one point as well, and that's is when you when you're staring down the barrel of that many pages that you've never written before in your life, you're like you have to you have to come up with a method of, and. I was like, you know what? If it if you just if you do a page a day, there's only there's 365 pay, days in a year. Mm-hmm. Like, you'll easily finish a screenplay, a two hour screenplay at 120 pages. You'll finish that in less than half a year if all you do is a page a day. Sometimes you don't make it, but at least try. Like, oh. And then the the everyday act, whether or not eventually I don't. I've just gotten away from measuring it in pages, but the idea is like I have to do something for this project every day and that moves the project forward and all of a sudden it's done mm-hmm. <laughs> or the rough draft is out there and it's time to go back and I find I find that I the act of it's the, the empty page the empty screen is the hardest part obviously and then editing it is super simple comp- in comparison and I can do that for a lot longer I can edit for like an hour I can edit the whole thing maybe if if we get into the right vibe like I'll just spend the day doing that but writing it rarely comes in like five hours but page a day half hour a day yeah. And, then, and then it's done. Yeah, and I think it also helps to give yourself many assignments. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes if I just could not put words on a page, I would say, okay, well, I need to do something to move this um, this project forward. So maybe it's finding a name for a character mm-hmm. one day. Or maybe it's, you know, reading some background research and usually that's enough to spark actual writing. Yeah. But even if I don't get something out that day, I feel like I've accomplished something yeah. and contributed to reaching the goal. Um, so that was really helpful trying to come up with like making it fun. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, as far as like the, the writing process itself, I would say the other big thing that helped was um letting go of perfectionism oh yeah yeah (laughs) it's amazingly hard to do but if you just put something down on the page what regardless of whether it's good or bad or whatever like removing that value judgment it helps you go in the direction you eventually want to go in you know even if it's not quite right if it's not you know 
the way that you really want the scene to take shape. It's giving it a skeleton that yeah. you can then... Because I like editing more, too. Yeah. So if I can just get things down, then I can put my editor hat on. And then I'm happy and <laughs> yeah. excited to work on it. The stakes are less because you're making it better. You're not you're not having to come come up with anything out of thin air. Even though you actually are. like, And I've, I've talked, to, talked to people about this before. Editing is, in and of itself, a very creative act and very necessary to the creative process. But um, it's just you don't have to necessarily invent from nothing you have constraints now you have like well this is this is what the scene has to accomplish now that i know that let's look at the scene again and figure that out from there yeah um and i always loved in terms of like daily work i think it's from a movable feast hemingway's memoirs of his time in paris he's he talks about i mean he notoriously drank and wrote for hours in parisian cafes after before and after betting on horses and all of this other stuff. Um, but he always said that he would always leave himself something to do tomorrow. Mm. So he wouldn't like the idea of don't if you finish your role, let your role complete, but don't solve every problem that you've sort of created for yourself. Leave something as like a little, a little bit of sand to get the next pearl going. And I've always found that incredibly helpful. That's an interesting way to put it. And it's also a nice positive spin on, you know, reminding yourself that you don't have to, you know, what is it, build Rome in a day or right, yeah. whatever the <laughs> saying is. Yeah. So at what point then did you, did you get a director first or did you get actors first or moving forward? How did you, what was that process? That's the process that I don't totally understand. <laughs> Yes, and that's something that I've been learning as I go. <laughs> um, but I did director first. Um, I mean, across the board, all of the advice that I had been given from people who have done Fringe before was to get a director first. Okay. Um, and I basically was looking for a director as I was doing the application process. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and as someone who never participated in Fringe before, um, that was a little scary because. I didn't know who to go to. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm not of this world. <laughs> um, I so I that's where you know things like the writing group became oh, okay invaluable um, because not only did I have people to keep me accountable during the writing process, but um, you know they also opened a lot of doors for me mm-hmm. uh, that I would not have known about. So a friend of mine who also has a friend show, and I'll give him a shout out. Um, <laughs> His name is Derek Hills, and his show is called Prison Break Incorporated. Uh, he's been in French shows in the past, and this one is uh, his first that he's written. And he held a reading of his show at his apartment one night and invited some of his actor friends to be there. Um, when he introduced me, I told them I've got a French show too, and I'm trying to figure out what to do next. A couple of people said, send me your script. Script ended up, you know, passed down into the hands of the person who's now my director. Uh, okay, okay. I believe she's appearing on another podcast as well. Yes. Uh, so my director is Sarah Scafidi. Uh, I'm very uh, excited to have her on the show. Um, first of all, she's just a really lovely person. And I really enjoy working with her. Um, I couldn't have, you know, found a better match. Um, 
but she does a lot of work on social justice themed productions. Oh, okay. And actually, the um, one of the most recent shows she worked on um, had a very similar theme. It's called The Who and the What. It just closed at Roundhouse. Oh, okay. And uh, it's about a Pakistani-American family. And it has a lot to do with, um, you know, Muslim Christian understanding. And, you know, a lot of it, th- that one is about the immigrant story. So mine is almost a mirror image of that mm-hmm. because mine's about Americans going to the Muslim world. But, um, you know, she had just come off of that production going into the um, rehearsals for mine. So I, I couldn't, you know, it couldn't have worked out better. Yeah. You know? Um, in fact, that playwright, um, Ayad Akhtar. Oh yeah. And disgraced as well. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that was just at arena, arena stage. Yeah. They did the like, well, I've worked on the lights for that. Oh, cool. Michael Gilliam designed the lights. He's the one responsible for that. But yeah. So it, it, it's very topical. Yeah. yeah <laughs> yes. Almost too topical because actually <laughs> one thing that, uh, Sarah and I did with, um, my, our, we have an assistant producer slash assistant director slash stage manager slash set designer slash everything we need. Um, you should get one of those too after you have a director. (laughs) (laughs) So my coworker, Michelle Diggles and Sarah, the director and I went to go see whiskey tango Foxtrot. Sure. Yeah. It was kind of like a getting to know each other and getting our, you know, arms around the setting of the play. And, uh, as I was sitting there watching this movie, I thought, oh, no, this is too close to my play. <laughs> I was worried that, you know, people will see this and they won't they won't want to see my play because they're so similar. But um, it was also kind of good from a you know, I, I went from a research point of view and it helped me um, confirm some of the you know, things that I had written and, you know, characters that I had created and what it, how they, how they spoke, you know, mm-hmm. what, um, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but that's what the show is for. Great. So, uh, you know, one thing that was really interesting in the writing process is, um, developing the voices of the different characters. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I have five people in the show. I have five characters. Um, three are Americans and two are Afghan. Um, so one thing that I set out to do from the very beginning is develop like the American voice and the Afghan voice. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the Afghan voice, I mean, I, I haven't been to Afghanistan. Um, so I was a little nervous about, you know, how, how I'm going to create these people to be authentic. But I kind of went with um, this, you know, if you ever hear people speaking um, in a second language, it's always kind of overly formal. Mm-hmm. So that's what I did with the Afghan characters. Um, and that's one way that they are differentiated from the American characters is there's, um, they would use, you know, words that, um, you know, would be like a $2 word if you were to, you know, ask a a junior high student in the United States what it meant or how to pronounce it. Um, and, you know, just the like formality of the way that they interact with other people and how that's reflected in their speech. Um, so that was something that um, helped seeing in the movie uh, was, you know, how those characters spoke and the rhythms and the word choice mm-hmm. 
Um, that was actually kind of, I, I didn't expect that that would be, you know, like where I found that, but that was actually, um, yeah, something that I used to confirm what I was doing. Yeah. 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 It's nice to get some validation when you're, when you do something that you think is basically a leap and then you're like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I was right. I did that. I did my work. <laughs> yeah. I did, I did my I can homework. trust my instincts. That okay. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's very cool. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So, uh, casting, mm-hmm. how did, how did you set up the audition? Where did you advertise it? Yeah. Um, so we did, um, two nights of the first round and then we did a callback a week later. Um, I think, so we did what I believe most friend shows do is, uh, we use public libraries here in DC oh. and, um, there's usually a similar kind of casting notice that goes out. Um, and Sarah knew a couple of places to post it where okay. there were non-equity actors, yeah. you know, hang out on the Internet. Uh, so <laughs> that's, that was um, kind of our quick and dirty way of advertising it. Um, but I'm glad that you asked about casting because one thing that I really wanted to do with this show was build a diverse um, cast. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, it's really hard. <laughs> um, and I was hoping that it was one of those things where like, you know, if you build it, they will come. Sure, yeah. Um, and I would advise to future fringe producers, like, you know, try to find, um, some ways to connect with people in the theater world, like people of color and um, people of different backgrounds in advance of holding your auditions. Ah, okay. Because once you put the auditions out there, you're getting so many emails from people and requests that you don't realize until it's audition day what you've actually like created like Mm -hmm. what what the structure composition of your cast is going to be based on who walks in the door Mm -hmm. i mean you have the headshots you know in advance but you're not really thinking okay so i have like four hispanic people and i have oh male female ratios out of control Mm. i mean we probably had so we had 40 or so people audition and the male the female male ratio was probably eight to one. Eight women for every one man. Yes. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So that's that continues after after school. That's very true in school, especially high school. Yeah, I was surprised it was that it's bad. lopsided. Yeah. Um, so that was actually funny because I ended up rewriting a character who was originally male into a female character, um, and I'm actually so glad that happened. <laughs> I mean, that's one of the serendipitous things about doing a show for the first time and, and and doing it in the fringe style where everything's kind of done on the fly. Yeah. Um, you know, we had, and I actually, as I was writing it, there was one person in particular from the auditions who was like, she could do this. Like, she's got, like, that's the, the spirit or, like, the essence that I want to capture. Um, and that, it also led me down a completely different, path for the character changing from male to female because it was one of the afghan characters Mm -hmm. um so then it's you know what is it like to be a professional working woman in afghanistan um that made it so much more interesting to the character um and i also went down a new research path that was incredibly interesting and um i discovered this book 
that came out a couple of years ago um, called The Invisible Girls of Kabul, I think. I hope I got that right. Mm. Um, we'll but, put it in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so it's about um, this cultural phenomenon that's been going on for a long time in Afghanistan where families who have not um, had any sons will raise one of their daughters as a boy. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. It's, yeah, especially, yeah, to the Western world, it's like, are you, like, why, what, how? Well, the stakes for them are really high if they're in the wrong place and it's discovered that they are not that gender. But actually, so here's the crazy thing. It's totally accepted in Afghanistan. Wow. Because people are like, yeah, well, if you don't have any sons, like, you need someone to play that role um you know if you're so for example if you're a family where you own um like a grocery store yeah um girls aren't supposed to work um in the store but a boy could so Mm -hmm. if you need one of your children to help stocking the store and you know closing it in the evenings and things like that um having a girl dressed as a boy do it is better than having a girl dressed as a girl do it right um fascinating yeah and and, you know it's even things like everyday life where um you know young girls can't go out in the streets by themselves um they always have to be escorted but if you have a daughter who's dressed as a boy she can escort her sisters to go outside wow that's interesting yeah um so usually this practice ends by the time um, that the girls reach puberty okay, because gotcha. obviously you know they can't really cover it up anymore. Um, but of course, you know there are some people who once they've had that kind of like taste of liberty and freedom don't want to go back. Mm-hmm. So there are a few um, women in the book who um, you know really struggled with. Um, you know, <laughs> returning imagine. to their birth gender. Um, so one thing that is not explicit in the show, but informed the character is that, you know, I think that she would have been one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something that I gave to the actor who's playing this role as, you know, something to, like, to inform mm-hmm. what her character does and why. That's uh, that's an extra layer for sure. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, so you got casting out of the way, and how did you get to your designers? Out of curiosity, um, this was uh, one of the um, great benefits of having a director who mm. is in the theater scene. Yes, you know, so she recruited. Um, you know, her boyfriend is our sound designer so okay. that was an easy yeah. ask sure. yep. um yep. and so that's um austin bird our light designer is paul callahan i know him oh good i worked with him yesterday and all of the previous week oh hilarious that's that's too funny yeah yeah when i said it, i was like on on friday i'm gonna record a, co- a podcast with someone who's doing the show and he's like oh what show oh wait i'm designing that show yep <laughs> and they've had a lot of fun with it um and they've taken it in a direction that I never could have conceived. And that's exactly what I wanted when um, I was looking for a director. Mm -hmm. Um, I do not have that visual, Mm -hmm. creative, I don't know, um, 
It's just not what I do. Well, and you don't have the reps yet. Like you haven't done it. To, yeah. To and I wouldn't know even know how. It. Yeah. I, I mean, I, 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 you, I actually, so um, in one of our design meetings recently, Paul was asking a question about the psych. And I, <laughs> I was like, the what? Like the psychology? You know? <laughs> Yep. So, the cyclorama. Yes. So that's, you know, if you are a first time fringe producer, have some people who have been there before. You know? Yeah, I, I can't actually. So coming from as as someone who has worked in theater professionally for probably a, for a decade now, um, there is a lot of things that I have like forgotten and just or not forgotten, but just simply take for granted about how much time things take. And just the logistics of a production. Mm-hmm. And if you've never produced before, the odds are pretty good. You don't know how complicated turning the light, just turning the lights on and turning them off in a theater space is. Yeah. Uh, if you want it to look good. Yeah. And, you know, I have um, very limited special effects in the show. But, you know, I didn't realize that, okay, if, if you want a spotlight. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I thought, oh, spotlight's you know, just like that comes with the the package, right? Like that that just is, um, you know, I didn't realize, okay, you can have a spotlight, but it can only be in one place, which I is fine. The way that I I wrote the show is no big deal, but I didn't realize that, you know, like it is something that is installed. Mm -hmm. And once it is in that spot, it stays in that spot, you know, even things like that, you know, yeah. Or you I can hire a spotlight it. operator if you really feel like it, but that's on you. Yeah, no thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. The, it's a fringe show. <laughs> yeah, fringe will do that, but you have to rent the spotlight yourself and pay the other person involved yourself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the interesting part, too, from a technical perspective, and this is this uh, I, you'll have more information about this because I've only heard about this from people like Paul, who 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 is a designer who also does electrician work in order like we all do. We we turn wrenches at bigger theaters so that we can turn the lights on in smaller theaters. In my case, projections. I do I do video and projections. Um, a regional theater will have five tech rehearsals and dress rehearsals. Well, most of them aren't dress rehearsals, but the costumes will be around. Three eight out of tens. That's and that's just for the actors. The actors are on stage for eight hours out of a ten hour stretch. Thank you. <laughs> two ten out of twelves. You get an extra one if it's a musical. So two ten hours. The actors on stage for ten hours out of a twelve hour stretch. They get a two hour break. But technicians are there at least an hour, and the stage managers there at least an hour before the actors are on stage, and for at least an hour during dinner. So all told, you're talking about. See, 36, 48. You're talking about right around 80 hours of rehearsing technical things in the theater space in order to make the theater space work. And and fringe, you do not have that. Yeah, time. you want to know how much time I got? I do. I can't wait. Three hours and 40 minutes. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. Um, of course, and that's our tech. Yeah. Um, I mean, we ha- we probably have hit somewhere in the 80 to 100 hour range in total rehearsals yeah. but that's including you know going as far back as table reads right yep um but i was told that um the rule of thumb is an hour of rehearsal per page ish mm-hmm. um and we've we've probably accomplished that <laughs> at the end of the day um yeah 
Yep, it's a it's a thing. It's a deal. There's a lot of work. Yeah, <laughs> it's real crazy. So the other, I guess the, well, we we probably won't know the final answer of this until after your show closes, probably. But are you going to do it again? <laughs> okay, it, asking me that today. <laughs> I hesitate to tell you how I really feel because it's a lot of work. You know, even though I I am not directing it, I am not acting in it. I am solely producing it. And I am ready to go on vacation, (laughs) (laughs) but it hasn't started yet. Um, Not to say that, I mean, it's a labor of love. Mm -hmm. I really, really, you know, enjoy the process. But I think that... um, you know, once it's over and I've gotten to step away from it, then I'll be like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, you know, let's do it again. <laughs> sure enough. Yep. <laughs> but, you know, it seems that people like get bitten by the bug once they, yeah, you know, done it once, about. you know, yeah. that people go back a lot. Well, well, and it's just like, well, it's not exactly like a language because uh, learning a language, the second language is the hardest language, not the first one. But the first production is the hardest one. If you... And this is why theater companies exist. If, and if obviously if you work in theater, it's a lot easier to step into this. Like I only get 80 hours to do this. I know exactly how much time I need to spend on one thing and do that. Like Paul obviously will have done all kinds of work ahead of time with the venue and with the board operator and, and all of that stuff. But the first time I experienced the way that regional theaters make theater, I was like, this is crazy. <laughs> no, no way. Yep. Why would you do this to yourself? This is totally insane. And and it would to be fair, the first show that I worked professionally was huge at the alley, much ado about nothing. Uh some of you may remember it. My listeners might remember it. The it massive production. Big, big, big show. That was a, like a cloud they envisioned it taking place in a cloud kingdom, so it had like a hot air balloon in the center of the trap that blew up and the people were supposed to exit from. That gag did not work, so that got cut. But like balloons flying up in the back of the psych, which if the alley was a which is a physical a concrete wall that was curved that we had to light from all sides. Oh wow. Um extensively from all sides. Uh and I was just like, Oh my gosh, this can't be the way that we do it. It's insane. But now I'm like bored when it's not that <laughs> that, that time. Yeah. I mean, part of it is like you live for like on the adrenaline. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it teaches you actually a lot about troubleshooting and managing projects and people. Yeah. You know, I yeah. go back and I think to like when I was interviewing for business school and interviewing for jobs in business school and you'd always have to tell stories about you know talk about a you know a project that you you led or and I'm like oh I've definitely got one now (laughs) this is the ultimate you know like lesson in um you know keeping a group of people moving toward the same goal and you know managing the you know random things that happen that can you know knock you off of your perfectly laid plans Um, yeah, it's a good lesson in, um, you know, reacting to, uh, you know, unforeseen events. (laughs) Yes. I know a lot of people who recover from theater by going into project management. Yeah, actually, I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretty good at it. And if you, if you survive long enough to get good at it, then you're really good at it. Like, 
I would highly recommend. <laughs> yeah. and, and apparently people like Booz Allen, Hamilton, and other consultancies actually do, and Forbes has covered this a couple times, like think of people who were already working in the cultural industry as project managers precisely because of the types of problem solving, collaborative problem solving that people have to do in places like theater and film. Yeah. And uh, how useful that can be. Yeah. We are actually at our hour. Okay. That uh, <laughs> that happened rather quickly, actually. Um, did we talk about everything that I wanted to talk about? We talked about the whole process. And, yeah. But your show hasn't even opened yet. <laughs> right. That happens on the 7th, right? That's right. On the 7th, yeah. Yeah. And do you know when the other podcast is coming out? I do not. I can't remember either. I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear it, so that's going to be really cool. Yeah, I mean, they're brand new. Yeah, exactly. I think it's their first or second episode or whatever. I don't know when they're airing it. They're, they haven't... Have they aired one yet? I got lost in a project. That's the other thing that happens in theater. I walk in. I went down to Georgetown to do um, uh, Young Arts does a salute to the presidential scholars every year. Um, And they do that at the Kennedy Center Concert Hall and it's broadcast. Oh, cool. Um, We don't rehearse in the concert hall, though, because that's incredibly and insanely expensive to do. Oh, I bet. Uh, Because you're talking about like a minimum of 10 union hands. (laughs) That's ridiculously expensive for a 12-hour day. Um, so they do it at the Gonda at Georgetown. Okay. And I went in, and I was like loading in, and this is great. And all of a sudden, I worked 85 hours, and a week has gone by, and it's Monday again, and I have no idea what day it is. I actually didn't know that. Like, what day is it? Oh, no, Tuesday was the day we were done. So that I didn't know what day it is. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, every intent I had for, like, oh, I'm going to catch up with Orphan Black. I'm going to catch up with Pretty Little Liars. Like, oh, crap, I'm like three episodes behind on all of these shows. This is crazy. <laughs> Uh, which you can't do with Game of Thrones either. I, I bought into season, season six of Game of Thrones because, I, because I'm not waiting for the book because he's never oh, yeah, going to publish it. So yeah. Like, well, <laughs> fine. Maybe he needs some constraints well, to I finish this project. Yes. Also, I don't know if you heard about this, but he did a Q&A with Stephen King. Interesting. And Stephen King, obviously very prolific. prolific. I, I did not practice my vocal I didn't do my vocal warm-ups uh prolific author who wrote a really great book called on writing yeah um so <laughs> George R. R. Martin was like how the fuck do you write so fast and his answer is uh, you just do it so yeah. people a lot of people have high hopes that George R. R. Martin is actually gonna actually do it because Stephen King's like pushing him publicly into it plus I don't know are you a fan of Game of Thrones or so, anything like that? <laughs> yes. Funny you ask because, no, so I was a hater for a really long time. I just wanted nothing to do with it. I I, I just wanted to be, um, you know, a, a, a counter, what's the word? I'm, I'm forgetting what it, I just didn't want to like it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. End of the story. Um, but I recently started watching it from the very beginning. Oh, wow. Okay. And I just went through season one, and I've literally <laughs> just seen the first episode of season two. That's where I am right now. Oh, well, okay. So I'm still on the fence. <laughs> I mean, I like it, but am I like in love? Do I think it's the greatest story ever told? Not there yet. No. And I don't know, because I, I got there through the books. I was tricked into reading the books. I was told Game of Thrones... A song, the Song of Ice and Fire is a five book event. And book five was about to be published in, in accordance with like 
right around the time the season two of the show was about to happen, like book five came out. I was like, oh, book five's out, TV show's up, great. We'll catch up, and then I'll start watching the TV show, it'll be fine. So I blew through books. Uh, I lived by myself at the time, and it, yeah, <laughs> it was really easy to get through. Um, but I get to the middle of like book four, and I didn't, I, what I should have done was my Wikipedia homework because they will tell you it was supposed to be a trilogy that became a five book thing that is going to be a seven book thing. So I don't believe that. I don't, will not believe that until it's actually happened anyway. But I got to the middle of the fourth book, not having done my research, which is a mistake. <laughs> and I was like, there is no way. We're, we're skipping half of the characters in book four over this period of time. Like Daenerys isn't in book four at all. At all. So we're only on these one subset of characters, and I'm halfway through it, and there is no way that the end of book four is going to be all those characters coming back. Like, there's another book past this that lines us up after I've read what happens in the other half of this parallel timeline. And that's when I was super pissed. I was like, (laughs) okay, fine. I'm going to finish. I'm going to get through book five, and so I can just put a pin on that. And then I looked up, like, the, the gap between book three and four was something like seven years. And the gap... No, no, no. Uh, it was like five years and the gap between book four and book five was seven years. And that's when I was like, okay, well then fine. I'm I'm washing my hands of this. I'm totally done. So when season six of the show rolls around and we're getting into stuff that is... Not the, in the books. That has not yet appeared in the books, then I was like, fine. I, then I'm going to get my story this way. Yes. And it's hilarious. So I don't I don't have any relationship with seasons one through five of the television show at all. <laughs> I'm just watching season six and it's, you can't fall behind because Twitter, it's like the only show that everyone is following who Matt, who not matters. That's wrong. Excuse me. Um, (laughs) The, the cultural critics I follow all follow Game of Thrones and it is impossible not right to 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 experience the internet is to know what happens in Game of Thrones in this, in these circles. So you just have to put your phone away at, nine o'clock right yeah on a sunday night so what's great for you like you're so you're so far back in it like you can experience it and be like i don't know what that means and you'll totally forget what that means yeah it'll be great but the final episode and i loved this the final episode of season six is called the winds of winter Mm -hmm. that's the title of his book oh yeah i was like either that was just just a needle hey george hey george Or it was it, somehow they got permission to do it. I don't know, it was hilarious though. It just felt like an f you, George, for not finishing. We're going forward. That's pretty good. This is us. So you know, it's so going back to I guess the writing process. Maybe this will be like a nice way to nice little button. You know, yeah, yeah. Lock the box, yeah. right? <laughs> Tie the bow. Um, you know, J.K. Rowling mm-hmm. when she was writing Harry Potter. I mean, I remember like as that whole craze was going on, I had assumed that she was kind of writing the books, you know, like adding to the story as she went. Mm -hmm. And I later learned that that was not the case at all. She had plotted out everything that she wanted to happen in those seven books from the very beginning. And then I realized that's why they were so well written. Yeah, (laughs) right. Yeah, She had a plan and she stuck to it. Um, so yeah, I subscribe to, you know, her, uh, her writing ethic. I don't know if I'll ever be quite that, um, meticulous, but I admire it. Yeah. It's the first, the way to get good is to recognize what is good. Um, which is what I'm doing actually to put a real bow on it. (laughs) We're recording on a Friday 
a little earlier than uh, we had actually arranged, which is my fault, but that's because I got done filming at Sitar way earlier because I'm doing oh. projections for Sitar Art Center's West Side Story and teaching there during Camp Sitar in their teen intensives. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's right around the corner. <laughs> yes, it is. Literally, I, I at first when I, you're like, this is, this is the address of where we're going to do this. I'm like, oh, okay, great. I was like, this is a mistake. No, no. I want to go from here to there. Oh, no. That's literally right around the corner. Yep. <laughs> it was awesome. <laughs> so on that note, we should say you definitely have something to plug. Yes. It is. <laughs> it is the real world cobble coming to the Capitol Fringe Festival on July 7th. Um, our first performance is at 9 o'clock. All of our performances are at the Atlas Performing Arts Center okay. on H Street. Um, we have... Which- which venue? Lab 2. Lab 2, okay. Yes. Um, we have five performances in total, um, July 7th, 12th, 16th, 20th, and 22nd. Um, you can check out the Capital Fringe website, capitalfringe.org, for tickets and more information and show times. And we're on all the social media. We're at Real World Cobble. Yep. And uh, buy your buttons, folks. Yes. <laughs> Don't forget your buttons. Um, and... No, I think you nailed it. That's that's a real complete package. All right. On all your social mediables, Instagram, Facebook, yep. Twitter. Twitter, yep. Yep, yep, yep. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Thanks for having me. All right. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's going to look for the review in DC Metro Theater Arts. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah. Thanks, Joel, in <laughs> advance. <laughs> all right. We're out.